Hey everyone, Trace here. Just wanted to let you know that Joe stuck his finger in an electrical socket this week and it tweaked his audio just a bit, so you may hear some static on his end. Also, my regular recording studio was unavailable to me this week, so you may hear my dogs in the background drinking water, eating food, and doing other things to survive. Apologies for this inconvenience, but Joe and I hope that this won't be too troublesome to your listening experience. Anyway, thank you for your patience and back to the show. Also, Joe didn't really stick his finger in an electrical socket. Loved it. I'll send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Welcome back to Horror Queers. We are talking external wombs. We're talking psychosomatic pussy things. I'm grossed out. I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and I'm grossed out too, but I love this fucking movie. Yes. I mean, how could you not? And well, some people when it came out didn't like it. That is bullshit. But also that question was rhetorical because the only right answer is that people have to love this fucking movie. Yeah. (laughs) We'll get into the reception in just a little bit, though. Joe, what are we talking about today? We're talking about The Brood. We're talking about David Cronenberg's The Brood, which is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. So... Yep, and we are revisiting Cronenberg, and if you have been a loyal listener of this podcast, you know that this is the second film of his we've done. We did cover Dead Ringers um, a couple months ago, although we are on level playing ground in this episode because I have seen this movie before. However, when it comes to the behind the scenes knowledge, I'm probably not as into it as you are, but that's okay, because I'm sure you're going to tell me everything you know. For sure. And I'm not going to go into things quite as deeply as I did during Dead Ringers. So I would encourage people, if you have not listened to that, and our statistics prove that many of you have not, uh, (laughs) you may want to go back and revisit that one because it's a good primer for some things Cronenbergian. Although, yes, we will still address many of the various things that you might be interested to know as a scholar of the Cronenberg. Yes, and on that note, I did post our, not the exact download numbers, but I posted a chart just showing how all of our episodes were doing um, compared to the others. And yeah, Dead Ringers and Swim Fan are some of our least downloaded episodes. And I'm very hurt by that because Swim Fan, I think, is one of our funniest. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not to toot my own horn, but I would say that Dead Ringers is probably one of our more educational ones. So No, it totally is. I mean, I wouldn't say it was dry, but it definitely is like... <laughs> no, but yeah, it, it's definitely... I'm not saying no. it. Others might say. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. no. Um, no. It's just more of an academic educational episode than it is more of a fun riffing episode. This one, sure. I think, might be a mix of both. I think so. Yeah, we're, we're there's see. lots of stuff to talk about, despite the fact that this is a very brief movie, all things considered. I was shocked by that. I, I, I've seen this movie twice before, so this is my third time watching it. When I saw it was 92 minutes on my Criterion Blu-ray, my mouth dropped. I was like, what? Because I remember it being longer. But it's not, and it is very quick. It is. Yeah. It's kind of brief. It's actually fairly streamlined, and yet... I would argue, much like Calvert, there's a lot of things going on here that if you want to do the work, you could dig into. 
Yeah, for sure. But I will confess, I didn't watch a commentary. I didn't watch behind the scenes shit. I didn't really do a lot of research. So um, I'm going to go into this as a dummy. Fair enough. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So, yes, we are discussing David Cronenberg's The Brute, which was released on May 25th, 1979. I believe that was the U.S. release date, though. I think it came out like a week earlier in Canada. No, that was the Canadian release date. It was a week later in Canada. I don't know. It's one of those things. (laughs) It's a Canadian film. Yes. (laughs) It's actually the first of a two-week Canadian film extravaganza that we're going to continue next week. Woohoo! It was made on a budget of 1.2 million American dollars, which is 1.5 million Canadian dollars at the time. I'm assuming that gap might be a little bigger uh, today. I don't know. You're the currency. No, expert. our currency has remained exactly the same. Okay. <laughs> the American distributor is New World Pictures. Um, I don't have any box office information for this movie except for the fact that apparently it was financially successful. I couldn't find any numbers on the box office. Yeah, that is a little bit strange, but we are talking about now a 40-year-old movie, so... Yeah, but I mean, like, this is the year after Halloween, you got Halloween's numbers in box office mojo. I don't know. Whatever, not important. It was successful, and, you know, it... Whatever. Um, looking at a Rotten Tomato score, which, again, with these, is kind of like take with a grain of salt, because I feel like it's like half contemporaneous and half modern reviews. I don't know. But right. 80, 80% of Rotten Tomatoes, which, um, pretty strong, given what we're working with, but the audience score is 68%, and... Mm. Yeah, but that makes more sense to me. <laughs> yeah, I I would think so too. As actually, I think we discussed during the Dead Ringers episode, Cronenberg is definitely the kind of filmmaker who's going to skew more towards critically acclaimed, and he's, uh, shall we say, a bit more of a hard sell for regular audiences. Yeah, no, 100%. Metacritic, you're looking at a 63 out of 100, which, again, that makes more sense. But that's going to have your more, like, you know, high-profile critic reviews as opposed to the, um, you know, more modern online critic reviews. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, again, reception's all over the place. I think right now, though, I mean, again, it's in the Criterion Collection. So, I mean, I'm fairly certain this movie is considered, like, if not one of the greatest films ever made, one of Cronenberg's best films. For sure. I think it's one of only two to make it into that. What's the other one? I believe Scanners, surprisingly enough. I think you're right, but I mean, as we discussed in Dead Ringers, Scanners is not one of my favorite films of his. No. To be honest, I actually, I would argue it's one of the more accessible of his early films for audiences, which is maybe one of the reasons that Criterion would put it on, because they would say, oh, okay, this is a crowd pleaser. (laughs) I'm just thinking of someone describing Scanners as a crowd pleaser. It's got that exploding head, which is funny because people always think that there's so many exploding heads in Scanners. And it's like, no, man, there's like two. There's like two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So written and directed by David Cronenberg. Not surprising. And again, if you didn't listen to Dead Ringers, he directed Dead Ringers. He also directed Scanners. And he directed <laughs> Videodrome, The Fly. Or if you didn't go into his early shit, uh, you can also look up A History of Violence or Eastern Promises or... a maybe avoid his really recent shit, which people don't seem to care about, like Maps to the Stars and Cosmopolis. (laughs) Cosmopolis is interesting, particularly if you're one of those people who think that Robert Pattinson can't act. That's a good, uh, that's a good way to prove yourself wrong. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I would go on it. I haven't seen it, but um, I don't think he can't act. I mean, I've seen him in some things where I'm like, all right, cool. But he's not one of those actors where like his presence in a film makes me want to seek it out and see it, you know? No. But there's a bunch of people who will actively not seek out a film because he is in it. And I think that's usually a mistake. Do you have any of those actors that are like that? I don't like Julia Roberts. Oh, that's right. I don't have any female actresses that are like that. <laughs> but... Why? Who's yours? 
Matthew McConaughey. I hate him. Oh, really? Okay. I don't love him. Even though, I mean, he's not going to make me not go see it. Like, I went to go see Serenity this year, but that was for Anne Hathaway. But, like, I don't want to see the beach bum because I don't like him. And I don't like Harmony Corinne. As we've talked about. Yeah. Um, Russell Crowe's another one where I don't particularly, like, his presence in a movie kind of makes me not want to see it. Unless it's already about something that I do want to see. Interesting. Out of curiosity, is it the actor or is it, like, the type of performance that they're giving or a I bit think of it's, both? No, I think it's the actor. This okay. is really weird, but like, so my dad doesn't like him because he apparently read in a magazine once that Russell Crowe had B.O. And so I literally grew up <laughs> just every time Russell Crowe was on screen, my dad was like, you know, he has B.O. And <laughs> that is too funny and so specific. That's body odor in case you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so it's not even the him hitting someone with a phone. It's the fact that I think he smells apparently. <laughs> And yet, very on topic, considering that The Brood is actually all about, like, nature versus nurture. So clearly, you were brought up in an environment that encouraged you to think that Russell Crowe has B.O., and it has affected you all the way into adulthood. You're the best co-host, because you always get me back on track when I just jump off the rails. (laughs) Yeah, and so that's kind of the basic gist. Um, In terms of actors and actresses, not anyone I'm super familiar with, but they are... I mean, again, this is only a handful. You got Oliver Reed as Dr. Raglan, who... I was gonna say, you don't know Oliver Reed? I... Dude, I don't. Okay. (laughs) But I... I mean, I can't say that I'm a huge fan or anything, but he's... He's kind of a legacy actor. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, like, and I remember... Because he he was in Gladiator with Russell Crowe, and he famously died during the production of that movie. Oh my god, it's all coming full circle. Much like this film. Yes. But, I mean, apparently he was in The Who's Tommy, which I've never seen. He was in uh, The Three Musketeers from 1973. He was in Oliver! Exclamation point. The musical. You gotcha. And then Nola, who is my favorite character in this movie, was played by Samantha Egger, famous for Dr. Doolittle, a movie called, uh, sorry, the original Dr. Doolittle, uh, The Uncanny, The Dead or Alive. But what I know her from, she voices Hera in Disney's animated Hercules. Ah. I thought that was really fun. And then the guy that plays Frank is Art Hendel, uh, who is in Black Christmas. Art Hendel is also in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 78 remake, and he's in Porky's, which is a total seminal teen, like, it's the American pie of its day. I've seen the first one, but I, I mean, it's not very good. None of them are good. (laughs) No, none of them are, but they're very important to certain people. For sure. Um, I've also never seen any iteration of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, except for the faculty, if you even want to count that. Oh, yeah. I would call that. Yeah. So, Joe, what is mm-hmm. The Brood about? Okay. So, The Brood. So we start with Frank Carveth, who is uh, Art Hindle. He opens the film briefly attending a psychoplasmic session slash performance at the Soma Free Institute before collecting his daughter Candace, who was played by Cindy Hines. Well, arguably. And it played um, by, like, in quotes. <laughs> <laughs> She's just there standing and, like, making no facial facial expressions whatsoever. Yeah, we'll get to that. Okay, we learn that Frank and his wife Nola... Edgar, are going through marital issues that Nola is staying at the Institute to be treated by Dr. Hal Reglin, Oliver Reed, and that Frank is apprehensive about the intensive role-playing performances that encourage the physical manifestation of trauma on the body. So he's not a big fan of the Soma Free Institute. 
So during their sessions, Dr. Reglin coaxes out details about Nola's past, and it's revealed that she blames her mother, Juliana, for physically abusing her as a child, and she also blames her father for allowing it to happen. And in short order, both parents are brutally bludgeoned to death by deformed children-like monsters. (laughs) Frank manages to capture one, and an autopsy reveals that it is an immature organism that can only live for a brief period of time, amongst many other things, like it, you know, has no genitals, and they can only see in black and white, and so on. After Nola inadvertently confuses Candace's teacher, Ruth Mayer, played by Susan Hogan, for Frank's mistress, the teacher is killed by a pair of monsters at school <laughs> and Candace is kidnapped. Frank desperately tracks them back to the institute where Dr. Reglin confines that the creatures are the byproduct of Nola's treatment. Frank confronts her as Dr. Raglan attempts to smuggle Candace out of the attic, which is guarded by more than half a dozen of what we come to call them the brood. The action intercuts between Frank and Nola and Dr. Raglan's attempted rescue. Nola reveals an external womb from which she bursts the creatures, delicately biting and licking a newborn in front of a horrified Frank. Dr. Raglan is murdered and Candace is nearly attacked until Frank strangles Nola to death, thereby breaking the psychic connection she has to the brood. The film ends as Frank and Candace drive away, and it is revealed that the little girl has her own psychoplasmic symptoms, a pair of warts or blisters on her hand, suggesting that the cycle will continue. I actually forgot about that. I mean, do we want to call it a cliffhanger ending? Like, I, whatever, the, the, that ending. I, I totally forgot that um, it showed that it was on the girl. Mm-hmm. It's a nice little tease, right? Because there's the suggestion earlier in the film before Juliana, the mother, is killed that uh one of the reasons that nola was frequently in the hospital was because she herself had these kinds of uh welts like warts or blisters or welts and that kind of thing yeah Yeah. so yeah i mean it's it's so funny hearing you describe the plot of this movie because it sounds so fucking bizarre it's so weird and it's so i actually only heard about this movie uh because as call back to cemetery man i have one of those like you know 101 horror movies to see before you die books and this was in there and i'd never heard of it before i mean again this is like probably 10 years ago and so i sought it out immediately because i was like what like this fucking little dwarf children like going after people oh that sounds awesome um and it is and it is But it's funny, right, because it's not surprising to me that you had forgotten about that ending scene, because I think when you mention this film, there's two things that come to mind for people, and everybody forgets about nearly everything else. So people think about the brood and, like, the the physical look of them. So children in parkas or, like, ski suits. Mm Mm-hmm. And obviously that reveal scene, it's infamous. Like when <laughs> that... Nola pulls up that dress and there's an external wound, you're just like, what the fuck is that? Well, and it's so, yes, it's so freaky. And so weirdly though, she's had that the entire time, right? Because she that's how she births the brood. Like, yes. And the doctor knew that the entire time. Yes, but remember that many of the scenes that we see of him and her working through their therapy sessions you get the impression that they're so isolated, they really don't have any kind of concept of what's happening. So to me, it's always a bit of a surprise when uh, Frank shows up at the center and Dr. Raglan's like, yeah, so she's been like birthing these little things. And you're like, dude, you knew about this? What the fuck? Well, that's what I, 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 I didn't know, though, if he knew about it the whole time or if like he deduced it 
after like oh after the after the her dad died you know just, oh like these murders are happening during our sessions well i don't think that he knew that they were murderous i think he knew that she was birthing something because gotcha. that's why he's so proud of her right because yeah. she's the ultimate demonstration that his experimental like bullshitty therapeutic performance art works the climax of this movie is fucking phenomenal. I love everything about it. It's so suspenseful. It's so gross. It's whatever. But maybe we should... We're burying the lead. And so we should right. start at the beginning. Okay. So what... Like, what was your initial impression when you first watched this movie? Like, were you were you bored by it the first time? Were you engrossed in it? Like, what, what were your... No, I, I mean... I, I I was definitely engrossed, um, but it's one of those things that like, I find different versions of psychotherapy very fascinating, and I'm not well-read in it, I'm not like an expert or anything, but I just, when it's portrayed in film, like, I'm very interested in looking at other, like, at different types of therapy. Now, of course, this one, Psychoplasmics, <laughs> does not exist, I don't, to, to my knowledge. <laughs> not a real one. No. Nope. But it's... I mean, the, the first scene of the movie is you have Raglan talking to this guy who's been... I mean, I guess abused by his father for being too mm -hmm. feminine. Yes. Which, I mean, we're to believe he's gay, right? Uh, I mean, you could definitely read it that way, or you could infer that his father treated him like a little girl. Gotcha. And then he's also covered in, like, cuts and shit. So are we to believe that that is a byproduct of the therapy, or that he does it to himself, or what is that? No, so if you watch the scene closely, the the wounds that he has, uh, they actually become more pronounced as the therapy mm -hmm. continues. So he's right. like a weaker version of Nola. Gotcha. Well, so it really then goes to like, like the therapy itself seems to bring this out in people, but Nola is just mentally stronger or her emotions are so strong that it causes that. I mean, I, okay, I'm very fascinated by the mind's effect on the body like um hey, this might be like kind of gross but like when i'm stressed out i get like really bad canker sores in my mouth oh yeah for it's, sure the physical manifestation of anxiety repression you know stress all that kind of stuff i have that too i actually have like an escalating yeah i i guess i have like different levels that i associate with because i have that too well, just so you know, um, and listeners, I, I know it's a common thing. Well, not common, but like people have it. Um, the best solution for that, they say, is warm salt water. Uh, but you actually want to get alum. It's in the spice aisle of your grocery store. And it's used to pickle cucumbers. You just put a little bit of it on your canker sore for like a minute. Don't swallow it because it's horrible and bad for you. But it dries out the canker sore and you should be good in a day or two. Just uh, some helpful tidbits. But yeah, no, so I, I'm super into that. And so like, that, that's, that, I was never bored in this movie because I was so... But once, it, once you realize like what's going on and how the brood are, you know, react to her rage and they mirror like what she's feeling, it's mm -hmm. just, it's so fascinating. Even on a rewatch, like it's, I don't think it's a, lot, a movie where like you, you pick up on more things the more you watch it. I think, it, like you said, it's a very straightforward film. But it's so fascinating to me. I like the fact, too, that it's not the story of a vengeful woman who's sending these creatures out to murder people that she feels have treated her badly. Like, Nola has no idea what she's doing. Like, she thinks that she's working yeah. through her shit, and she's accidentally murdering people. Mm -hmm. And that is crazy. Well, okay, so. Well, okay, yeah, until... You 
well, I mean, this is a point of contention. Like, you could argue how much does she know or when does she know when she knows? I don't I don't think... Well, okay. So let's dive into this aspect then because I think this is probably the biggest conversation we have to have about this movie in terms of its themes. And in our Wicker Man episode, you mentioned when we were talking about misogyny and we were having mm-hmm. a film coming up talking about like, oh, a director was going through personal stuff and it shows in his work. I'm assuming it's this movie. Yes, it was this movie that I was referencing. Would you like to tell me what was going on with David Cronenberg? Okay, so I don't know any more details than what you can find on the Wikipedia page, but David Cronenberg routinely refers to this as one of his most personal films. He also calls it his Kramer versus Kramer, in case you want a sense of just how melodramatic and sometimes even uh, straightforward dramatic this film is compared to what we would normally consider horror films to be. Right. But in real life, so David Cronenberg was going through a divorce and a custody battle for his daughter, and he then made this movie. So there have been accusations that this film is inherently misogynistic because it, you know, our sympathies very much lie with Frank throughout a lot of the film. Mm -hmm. And even when we see nola working through her stuff you know she's obviously a very damaged person she's not mentally fit Mm -hmm. and there's a suggestion of course that she's been like physically abusing their daughter which is why frank has to take her away from the institute at the very beginning of the film right and then you get to the end and it's like the solution to stop the madness and stop the murders is that the man has to literally strangle his wife to death So there's a very, I think, simplistic reading where you could say, oh, well, Frank equals Cronenberg. And this is like what he wanted to do to his wife. I would suggest that that is definitely a reading. But I think that's actually a bit of a mistaken reading. I mean, it's it's reductive. It's it's very like on the surface because I do feel bad for Nola in this movie because, again, with her backstory. But it also goes into saying, okay, so like. If you are abused, if you are damaged, you know, I mean, sorry, sorry, not damaged, wrong, wrong phrase. But if you were abused as a child, are you doomed to, yeah, like, be like this when you're... cyclical violence. Yes, for sure. But I will confess, though, that when he strangled her, I was very much like, oh, this totally feels like this is what Cronenberg wanted to do to his wife. And I've never been in a custody battle, but... I'm, I imagine, I mean, or divorce, knock on wood, uh, but, <laughs> but you would imagine, like, I don't know what that feels like, and you, ha- I mean, there's so much anger and rage going through something like that, so, I mean, if I imagine this movie was very therapeutic for him, no matter what the intention was of, a, of, of the reading to be made. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's wrong to suggest that, like, he's publicly admitted he was working shit out by making this movie, but I don't think that means that he wanted to murder his wife. And I think the the reason that you would argue that, so the reason I said that I wouldn't agree with that is because it's just because Frank is our protagonist doesn't mean I think that we necessarily relate to him. To me, Frank is a prototypical Canadian male protagonist in the way that he's actually kind of ineffectual. He's a little bit impotent. So he's presented as constantly being late for things. He's not on the ball, like his He's behind in his building construction. He's missing meetings at Candace's school, as the teacher reminds him. So he's like, it's not that he's a bad guy, but he's actually like, he's not a great guy either. And I would suggest that you're right, that because Nola is presented in a sympathetic light, really up until the end, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a like, this is just 
a battle between two people who are maybe having like a dysfunctional moment in their marriage and it happens to turn into like a horror showdown at the very end. Well, and I think though, and we've gone through this before, how I, again, I gravitate more towards women, especially if they are somewhat villainous. But I feel like Nola is at least given an arc in this movie, which makes me like her more and relate to her more, even though I don't know shit about what she's going through. But nope. Frank is so milk toast, so yes. boring. <laughs> And Art Hindle plays him that way too, right? Yeah. Like you're following this guy, but he's really like, oh God, he's so boring. And granted, not as boring as little Cindy. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Cindy Hines, little Candace or Candy. But yeah. th but that's the thing is like, and it, when I read that um, Samantha Hager had only filmed for four days on this movie, because I remembered her being in more of the movie, but oh, she's yeah. really not like but it's because she's such a fucking tour de force, right? Yes. Like she commands attention. And not just because like she's she's glammed up in that she's beautiful, beautiful 70s style. Like she's so fucking stunning. That hair is Farrah Fawcett real. I was like, it's Farrah Fawcett hair. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like every time we see her she looks like she's like an actress or a model at some kind of country retreat. And she's just like working through a few things. Right? But here's, here's the thing though. I agree with you, but, and I mean this with, and with every single bit of like complimentary vibes that I can give it her mouth and maybe her chin too have this kind of like villainous look to them. It's like tight pursed, like, like her mouth is almost too small for her face almost. And mm -hmm. it gives her that kind of like, not insidious, but just like a tiny bit of a sinister edge for me. Interesting. Like the look of her is perfect for this role. It's weird because I can't remember the first time that I saw this film. I imagine I probably watched it in some kind of Canadian film class back in university, but I have no recollection of the first time I saw it. So I can't remember a time where I didn't know what she was doing, which mm -hmm. I would argue is the big difference between a first watch and a repeated watches you know you you go through all of the different therapy sessions knowing that every time she's having a fit against someone you're like oh, that person's not long for this world and that's the thing though like her outbursts are the most captivating parts even the first one which i don't know actually no this is when her mom dies and when she's like you know raglan's pretending to be her mom and or no pretending to be candace and you know she's like oh a mother would never hurt a child and she's like really she's well no sometimes they're bad mommies sometimes they're fucked up mummies. Oh, yeah. it's so good. <laughs> like, you just don't want to take your eyes off the screen. I mean, that's, I think, the the power of, well, you could argue it's the power of the, vil the villainous role. But also, I think it's just, she's so much more emotional and therefore so much more interesting, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's not that Art Kendall's doing a bad job. It's no. just that Frank is meant to be level-headed. Like, he's literally just he's trying to get through the fucking day. He's trying to make sure that his daughter doesn't wander off into the snowdrifts. Like, he's also your audience surrogate though, because again, even though this is the real world we're in, it's a world where this psychoplasmics thing exists mm -hmm. and he has to be told. And thus we have to be told what is going on in this movie. Yeah. Which is actually why I love the opening of this home, because it really just kind of drops us in. Like, it does. It's, he comes into an auditorium, he sits down, and then we just watch this super weird role-playing unfold between two men, one of whom is acting like a really severe father figure. The The patient is speaking like a, like a young child who self-identifies as a girl, and there's just this rapt audience of people, and you're thinking, is it a 
play? Is it some kind of weird, like new agey thing? And then the you know the wounds start to fester and grow, and he's getting more emotional. And you're like, what the fuck are we watching right now? So obviously, there's a suspension of disbelief with just the entire concept of psychoplasmics, but it's just I. And I buy into it, but it's just so weird because it's like, okay, this therapist, all he is doing is saying he is another person in this person's life. Not even mm-hmm. really doing a very good job of acting. He just is <laughs> saying words, <laughs> saying, hey, look, it's me, mommy. It's Candace. Okay, hi. And the other people just like, there's no hypnosis, there's nothing. It just happens. I thought that was so weird. Okay, but I'm surprised at this point that you haven't brought up Est. Okay, my only knowledge of Est is what I've seen on The Americans. All right. Well, I did pull it up. So Yeah, no, by uh, all means. So Patreon listeners will know this because we briefly mentioned it on the episode of... Oh, fuck. <laughs> Extremely, Extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile. There we go. Yeah. So in The Americans, which is a great television series that ran for six seasons on FX and stars uh, Matthew Reese and Carrie Russell as Soviet-era spies in the 80s, Throughout a couple of the seasons, as Matthew Reese's character is working through his shit, he goes to what is called EST, or Earnhardt Seminars Training, which was apparently very popular in the 70s through to the early 80s. But it's this idea that it's seminars where people get up in front of an audience of like-minded people and they role-play what they want to happen in their lives. And it's... uh, I mean, it's very much like you can change your life through the powers of transformation and personal responsibility and accountability and possibility. And yes, I'm reading the Wikipedia page, but a lot of people suggested, oh, you know, the shit is a cult and it's really not actually doing anything because it's just people getting up and talking, you know, yeah, talking about what they wish would happen or having the kinds of encounters that they wish they would have. It really reminded me a lot of AA. Like that's just what it looked like to me without like the religious bent that AA has bent. Maybe that's the wrong word, but like the religious angle. Cause I, I, but you know, AA while has helped tons of people kind of also comes across as kind of culty sometimes. Oh, for sure. I mean, anything that becomes a bit of a regimented or even indoctrinated practice run by a group of people who to a certain extent, are interested in improving your life, but can also be seen as potentially profiting off of it. Right. Uh, it, it has, you know, just that little that little touch of cultishness. You For know. sure. You start in the church basement, and then you move out to the desert where the Kool-Aid is. Yeah, but I mean, like, it, so it makes sense. It's just, it's such a weird concept to me. But, like you said, the movie just drops in the middle of this world and just runs with it and it isn't really until later that we really kind of learn what exactly is going like what what is what this is i think one of the reasons that i like it is because this is more or less this is a a slow deliberate introduction into something that's fantastical but as you suggested for the most part this world is very realist like this really is a like a separation drama between a husband and wife who don't really know each other, who are confronting the fact that the the wife might have been abused or mistreated by her own parents who are also divorced, who, you know, they're like, everybody's just kind of working through some shit. And then we just happen to also have these little child monsters running around bludgeoning people to bloody death. I was going to say this. So like the movie seems to take a stance on therapy in general, though, because you also have that man... I want to say it's Jan, even though it's spelled like Jan. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Who 
potentially got lymphoma from the psychoplasmics therapy. Oh, I don't think it's meant to be potentially. I think it's meant to be this was an example of Dr. Reglin not doing a good job. It's like, okay, he got lymphoma from the therapy, but... I don't, but then, okay, then you have this, is Raglan like a mad scientist? Is, he doesn't know what he's doing, just like Nola doesn't know what she's doing by, you know, sending out this brood of dwarf things to go kill people? It's, I mean, you could argue that Dr. Raglan absolutely does not know what the fuck he's doing. Clearly! He clearly seems to think that he's helping people, and I don't think his intentions are nefarious. No. But he obviously does not have a control on what happens as a result of these sessions. Well, so, and again, I'm totally like just guessing, shooting darts in the way here but you know i wonder if maybe cronenberg and his wife then wife went to couples counseling and it was like he was like this is a crock of shit because this movie doesn't seem to very (laughs) view therapy in a very positive light okay this is where i'm gonna dip back into some cronenberg stuff by all means so cronenberg has i don't know if you want to call it unhealthy but he he definitely has a fixation with scientists so they appear in nearly all of his early films starting with his very first feature, Shivers. So this is actually the third feature. So he did Shivers and then Rabid, and those are both on the low budget side, and they're kind of experiments that have gone terribly wrong. So like Mad Doctor Syndrome to the max. They're also, you know, highly sexual and they're like contagious origins kind of stuff. And then people credit the brood as the start of a more mature phase in Cronenberg's oeuvre. And this is where we don't get so much a mad scientist as a it's a more prominent role for the scientist or the doctor. Um, in the other two films, they're very much like ancillary, secondary supporting characters. Like they, they barely exist. They're there to kind of kickstart shit. Mm-hmm. Here, you know, Dr. Raglan is, to a certain extent, he's a bit of a voice of reason. He's the, the yin to Frank's yang because he's authoritative. He's in control. He's actually powerful. All the things that Frank kind of isn't. So you could actually read them as like, you know, two different versions of the same coin. And he kicks off a a run of like-minded scientist roles, with the exception of Scanners, because Scanners like the odd one out, Mm -hmm. uh, that continues through until we finally get into Cronenberg's mid-80s and beyond oeuvre, which is when the scientist becomes the main character. So that's when you get, like, The Fly and Dead Ringers. So it's, I don't know that Cronenberg doesn't like doctors, but I think he's absolutely fascinated by them, which also makes sense because he is a, like a scholar, like he's very well educated. Canadian Uh, scholar. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I love your fascination with Canada, which I mean, because you know, you're Canadian, but because I was looking at um, an upcoming movie we have in a couple weeks and I was like, it was like. Canadian filmmaker and I was like god damn it like (laughs) he's tricking me and making me watch all these Canadian movies (laughs) I know (laughs) I'm I'm secretly slipping them in you know why because I think sometimes people don't always know what is Canadian but like to me like my fascination with film when I was really getting into it it was the primary responsible like auteurs that I was latching onto was David Cronenberg and David Lynch. So I used yeah. to call them my two dads, my two Davids. That's creepy. Can you imagine? If- <laughs> can you imagine how fucked up that house? Would I was be? like, can you imagine like what that would be like? <laughs> if they were your two dads. Oh my God. Okay. I dream. I live. So let's talk about these dwarfs. Yes. Let's. They are some of the creepiest things. I have seen put on film in my life. 
I agree. I thought that they were played by children. Are like they not? With prosthetic masks. No, they're played by adults. Oh, like little people? Yeah. Oh. That's why I sent you that weird IMDb trivia of like what one of the guys, like, so one of the guys who plays the creatures, I think there was only two credited. He went on to play an Ewok in Return of the Jedi. Not surprising. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he also played an Emperor Penguin in Batman Returns. Yes. To which I just say, like. You do you, man. The roles for, do we call them little people? Do we call them dwarves? Do we? I thought it was, I thought little people was the PC term. Um, But if I'm wrong, listeners, yes. please politely tweet me. Totally fine. We clearly don't know. So this, I know it's not, actor it, it's not the of... M word. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this this actor of short stature, you know, that what a weird career to have, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not about your ability to emote or act. It's you're getting roles literally based on your height. I mean, so weird. You know what? More good for him. <laughs> like, sure. Good for him. But sorry to, to derail that. Uh, no, 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 yeah, no. The creatures, the creature design is really interesting. I love the alien autopsy sequence. Well, all right. So yeah, you touched on it in the beginning. I, I just want to read out. So again, if for some reason you haven't seen this movie or didn't watch it, um, what are you doing? But this, this is kind of the breakdown of what these fuckers are. So they have irises, but no retinas. So hence their black and white vision. They have a cleft lip, but not. it doesn't affect their palate. No teeth, but their gums are beak-like. There and then here's the fun one. There's a collapsed fleshy sack between their shoulder blades with nutrients, what the doctor refers to as a gas tank. Once the hump material is completely assimilated, the creature starves to death or runs out of gas. And then, of course, literally, they have no yeah, exactly. (laughs) They have no sexual organs, and they also have no navel, which is the first clue that oh, these weren't born like through natural childbirth. They were created some other way and Mm -hmm. up up until the ending too i thought that they were just appearing like they were just like appearing when she was upset but are we to believe then that they like drive their way somewhere to to murder people that that's never made clear no and that's actually one of the things that i kind of find so terrifying about them like the the creature design honestly they they look like children because they they're legitimately outfitted in snowsuits yeah it it looks like in the winter village of the damned with snowsuits and deformed faces like that's exactly what it looks like yeah which is hilarious when you see that scene of them walking cindy back to the institute because yes she looks like one of them yeah she does which, Which I mean, I but she she looks straight up like fucking Village of the Dam, like her hair oh and everything. Oh my god! Yes, yes, yes. So much so, especially yeah. the the shitty, terrible remake one with uh, Christopher Reeve. No, yeah, I mean more so. I mean, they look like that in the original too, but like they like really did it with the platinum hair in the remake. But one of the things that I love about the way that they just seem to appear wherever their their next uh, mm-hmm. victim is. I find that so terrifying. No, it is. The the introduction is literally someone kicking open a locked milk and orange juice drawer as though they, what, just apparated into... That's possible. Well, obviously, this movie didn't come out yet um, because this is 79, but it reminded me of Gremlins. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I guess Gremlins reminds me of the brood a bit, but no, yeah, that, that it's one of my favorite introductions and it's so creepy. And it's like, you know, oh, like they have like the drawer falls out, the silverware falls over, then the milk carton falls mm-hmm. and all these elements of domesticity fall and prey to these little villainous bitches. Yes. Uh, down with the patriarchy. Um, and then the grandma walks in and 
A, she didn't see this fucker hiding on top of her cabinet, which, whatever, Grandma. But the way, like... Well, she was sauced. She was already oh, on her second whiskey. Oh, dude! No, that was actually one of my favorite. Like, that's really fucked up. Because you see this happen before Nola, like, it, like basically says, oh, my mother was a drunk and, you know, she was abusing me. Is <laughs> the Grandma has, like, her, like, fucking double fashion of whiskey. And she goes to Candace and she's like... Oh, let me go top myself off, and then I'll help you play, or I'll help you draw, or something. And I'm like, bitch, mm. like, this is your granddaughter. It's my kind of babysitting. Uh, yeah. So, then she runs in there, and this thing just jumps on her. And that's actually yeah. kind of their main method of murder, is they jump on people, and then beat them with something. Which, this is probably the most brutal death for me, is the grandma's. Well, they don't seem to have a lot of physical strength, so I think they kind of need to, like, get on top of the person. And then, yeah, it's, like, brute force, head wound. In this case, it's what? It's a meat? Like a meat smasher? Yeah, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a meat mallet. Like, uh, you used to tenderize meat. Um, which, yeah. th- th- those are the ones where it's, like, one side of it's a flat, like a hammer, but the other side has, like, um, oh, I don't know what to call them, but they're, like, cone-shaped, like, you know, points. Um, a bunch of them. So right, it, yeah, 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 yeah. It hurts. I mean, I've like, I haven't hit myself with one, obviously, but like just touching it, it is really painful. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a brutal death, but not like mm-hmm. the movie's not overtly gory, um, yeah. with the exception of the end. But this, it just again, she's getting hit over the head again and again and again with this fucking meat mallet. It's insane. And it does feel like it's going on for a lengthy period of time because there's just so many whacks. Uh, Apparently, there are these were cut, so there there were cuts made to the release of this film, both theatrically as well as on DVD. So most of the cuts pertain specifically to the Nola reveal at the end, where she's like biting into the sack. The criteria. <laughs> well, apparently, the Criterion Blu-ray. Uh, restored that. Yes, and I think the Arrow released it as well. I will touch on that in a bit, though, when we get there, because that actually plays into the reception of the film at the time. Ah, okay. But I, I do think that there was some additional criticism leveled at the the disturbing amount of gore that we see when these people are getting their heads smashed, because it's always heads, and it's mm-hmm. always, you know, mallets or items of domesticity. Because once again, we are watching... A melodrama with horrific elements. Well, because, I mean, there aren't that many deaths in the movie. Like, So you got the grandma, which I think is the most brutal death. You got the dad, which is whatever. Yeah, the teacher's death, which isn't the most brutal. However, it is the most terrifying because it's oh in front gosh. of those kids. It, okay, so I... I had to text you immediately when no. I saw that because I had completely forgotten. <laughs> no, I the- thought that it was after class, so it was just her no. alone. And then I was like, wait... Oh my god, she is surrounded by children, and yeah. these two fuckers just walk up to her and start beating her. And all of these kids are standing around watching, stunned, paralyzed with fear. Like, it's, oh my gosh, it's, I was just like, therapy for you. You get therapy. You get therapy. You get therapy. No, it's so creepy. I mean, because also, most of this movie takes place in the daylight, and I'm a huge fan of daylight horror. Yes. You can make me scared in the daylight. Like, good for you. You're an effective mm-hmm. horror film. But it's, they walk in, they're in their fucking parkas, and it's, you know, <laughs> obviously, as the viewer, you're like, girl, there's all these, like, deformed dwarves, like, sitting here in your room. Like, do something. And then there's that moment where she sees them, she turns around, she sees them, and they're just staring at her. And it's, I want to see, like, five seconds of them just like, huh? Huh? Yeah. Huh? Huh? And then they just fucking jump on her. 
<laughs> well, and their their faces are blank, right? Like because they're yeah. almost like somnambulists, right? They yeah. they don't have thoughts, they don't have feelings. They they're literally dispassionate about this. It's like, well, it's a living. I got to make a job. They're Nola's id, you know, like her craziest desires. They enact them, but they just for some reason only do rage. I wonder what they would have done if there was like some kind of sexual scene in this movie, like where Nola was horny. Yes. It, okay. So there's. That's what I actually find really interesting about the other interesting thing that I find about this is the, again, come sort of circling back to these accusations of like misogyny and and sexism and that kind of stuff. I love the idea that there there's actually very little sexuality at play in this. Oh film. yeah, like mm-hmm. you know this particular murder of the school teacher happens because Nola mistakenly misinterprets like oh I called my husband's house. And this fucking school teacher answered, and what is you that bitch doing there? <laughs> well, which, like Nola, take a pill. Girl. Which no, but I, <laughs> I I read that too as very much like oh, I bet his wife like was a jealous woman. Probably. I mean, she she seems to have very strong emotions. So yeah. <laughs> I mean, she she's clearly in therapy because she needed someone to help her get a handle on stuff, not just because she's working through maybe some childhood repression about. Yeah, was she or was she not abused? No. But, I mean, that teacher's death is shocking, not only because, I mean, she's a nice character, you know, and I liked her. She she was, like, in the wrong place at the wrong time, and she's, like, she's just doing her job, and then these two little fuckers come in and just murder her dad. And then, like you said, there's that funny shot afterwards of the dwarves just walking with candy down the street. (laughs) Because when there's there's parkas, they're like waddling almost. It's just really like, it's a funny, like a penguin, like a really funny visual. Well, and it's also really visually striking because so much of this film is really, it's not desaturated, but the the color scheme is very like tans and browns and totes. And so when you do see these, these creatures, they're always in these bright blue blue bright red and you know i think candy is in yellow so the the sight of the three of them just walking down this empty barren road in these brightly colored winter parkas uh it it's so memorable and iconic to me now about this cunt and when i say cunt i don't (laughs) don't mean i don't mean nola i mean candy she i wanted her to die i was like (laughs) You are the u- most useless child. You know what? These people would be better off without you in their lives. You are a terrible little girl. Wow. She's terrible. You were talking about a traumatized child. I know. <laughs> like, think about what she goes through over the course of this I film. Know. I know. I-, I had to keep telling myself that. But I was like, girl, you, you're catatonic. This she entire is. movie. Is. Which is why I love that this whole, like, the whole movie is really, it centers around protecting Candace. Like, right. you know, Frank has to protect his daughter. And at the end of the day, Nola would rather see her daughter be murdered than let him have her. And then every time they flash back to this little girl, you're just thinking, why? She, <laughs> it's like, it's she's, like she's just going to need so much therapy. She's going to no, end up in some institution in a couple of years. It's like if you're watching a rom-com and you're like, you know, there's three guys going after the main girl and like you don't like her. And you're like, why the fuck do all these people like this girl? Like, <laughs> she's not even that great. Yeah. You know, this girl grew up to be Britt Robertson. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. I was also kind of perplexed by the frequent because um, there is some topless scenes in this movie. At Candy's expense. 
Oh, like child, child? Yes. No, child her, tit? her nipples are shown at least twice in this movie, including not only in the bathtub, but in the end, whenever the brood are attacking her and they're like lifting her shirt up. And I'm like, what the fuck? I mean, I get it. It's, it's a child. Like it doesn't, it's not sexualized at all, but it's just like, why? Uh, I mean, I mean you, you don't have to answer well, it. There's, gonna, not, there's no why. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not going to have a child in the bath with the top on. Which makes that sense. Make but then sense. they do it again, not in the bathtub. I mean, the, the final scene, I remember thinking it it almost looked like, okay, we've got a couple of takes. We're going to go with the one that looks most threatening. And I do, I, I think it's an interesting choice that they intercut between Nola and Frank Ooh, and yeah. Dr. Raglan and, you know, Candace getting attacked because in some ways it almost diffuses the tension. Oh, I disagree. Uh, I 100% disagree. You think so? Okay. So, well, we're just going to go into the climax of this movie then because it's the best part of the movie. Okay. I think it makes, well, maybe after they wake up, it's less tense, but I think that, so, okay. Setting it up again. So basically, Raglan, the brood have Candy in this lodge, and they're just all in there, and she's sleeping there for some unknown fucking reason. Like, when he wakes her up, she's and she's catatonic. like, whatever. <laughs> so basically, the Raglan's like, look, I'm going to go get your daughter, but you yeah. have to keep Nola calm, because if she's calm, the brood will stay asleep, and I can get Candy and get out. Yeah, that is some Michael Ironside level suicide mission right there. But yeah, Come so on, you pussy, you want to live forever? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's go fight the brood. So, okay. But, but, so you're intercutting them between, which, okay, don't you wonder though, if Frank just wouldn't have gone to talk to Nola, they would have just left her alone. Right. Wouldn't that have solved the problem? Because <laughs> yeah, she's not going to know. Even, don't talk to your, to your wife that you're having marital problems with who well, has come to this retreat to get her shit together. And that's <laughs> the other thing too. Why wouldn't Frank go get candy and then Raglan go to Nola? Wouldn't that make more sense? I mean, again, it would, but it doesn't work for the purposes of the film. I know. <laughs> well, because no. at the end of the day, like, because Raglan already knows what Nola is capable of, right? Yeah. Um, I can't help but wonder if Raglan is mentally thinking, you know what? These two need to work their shit out. Ooh, you know what? I'm going to subscribe to that therapy. Th- therapy. I'm going to subscribe to that theory. <laughs> <laughs> Good, because I made you an appointment for next Tuesday. <laughs> You're right. Um, but no, okay, so... But the way I like, I like the way it works though, because so again, you are engrossed in this conversation between Frank and Nola, even before her big reveal. And because you realize this is the first time you've actually seen them interact the entire movie. Yes. I mean, again, she's four days on set. She has had maybe five scenes before this. All of them are with Raglan. Maybe there's one with someone else. I think they're all just her therapy sessions with Raglan. Yeah, I think so. So you've got though, Raglan walking tiptoeing through this cabin with the brood Ooh. everywhere. It's so it, tense. And there's so many of them. I kept thinking like, oh, there's probably oh, yeah. just one or two of them. He can, you know, fight them off. He's Oliver Reed. He's a big guy. He's strong looking. Yeah. There's, I counted, there's at least six, maybe eight. Oh, I thought there were more. I thought there were like a dozen, but okay. Anyway, it's, so there's so many of them. But that in and of itself, that was very scary. And I'm a sucker for like, you know, the silent stuff, like silent sneaky things like that. Oh, sure. And, it's the Scream 2 principle, then. Yes. And the, uh, yes. And then you're watching Frank and Nola talk, and it starts fine. <laughs> yeah. And everything starts out okay. You're like, this is good. Just keep it this level. And it's, yeah, it's good. And then, of course, it's just her reveal. Obviously, you know shit's happening. And then yeah. she she's really proud of her womb. 
she gives the birth, she licks the baby, and he looks disgusted. And then she has that, and then when oh, you I see disgust it, you, yes, I, I sicken you. It's so great. The delivery is perfect. Oh my god, her delivery is everything, everything. If you have not watched this movie. You have to watch it just for that scene alone. Not yeah. just for the reveal, because the reveal is fucking crazy. But Edgar's delivery of these lines, it's so, it like, because she's becoming a villain, but she's also a protective mother. But mm-hmm. she's, like, a like. there's a lot of interest. Like, you can feel their relationship. Like, it feels real. Like, oh, oh, this is just another one of those fucking things that you don't like about us in our relationship. But to me, like, this is a good example of the editing in the film, though, because you're throughout all of this, you are cutting back and forth between Raglan walking through the cabin, sneaking over the brood, their conversation. Okay, she gets angry. Then the brood slowly start to wake up. Um, There's the part when he wakes up Candy, and I think the brood, one of the children, dwarves that are, like, a bed over, they sit up and just look at him. Yeah. And it's real. And then it cuts back. And it's Michael Myers level shit there. That's for me, though, that keeps the tension going. And it's just really really tense and i mean like i edge of my seat even though this is the third time i'm watching this movie no i i like all of that stuff it's after reglan's been killed to death and yeah. then you know candace is is standing with her back to the door and they're punching through and right they're grabbing at her and you're like i'm pretty sure that they're not going to murder this young child uh wouldn't that i be guess part of it did? is just i I appreciate that at the end of the day, the conflict has to come down to husband and wife battling it out for the custody of the child. Like, that's what everything has been leading to. Like, protect Candy at all costs and this battle of wills between them. But I think it was just because I didn't, I don't have that level of investment in Candy. Well, so, no. So there is a part, like, it's the classic shot, you know, whenever it punches through the wall and it, like, grabs her shirt and she's screaming and she screams and i wrote in my notes oh thank god candace screams and then i put in all caps personality (laughs) which maybe is supposed to be a breaking point for the character like maybe that's okay like look she's broken out of her catatonia and she's like feeling things now because she's in actual life-threatening danger yeah what's definitely a cue to the audience like hey this girl has basically said two lines of dialogue this entire movie but now she's screaming for her life shit is real at this point yeah, for sure. So, but I did want to backtrack though to the birthing scene and the editing, the cuts that had to happen. So basically, the scene of her licking the baby—that um, was her yes. idea, apparently. Like she yes. was like, "Oh, I watched something," and it's like an animal documentary, essentially. Yeah, and she was like, "All right." And apparently, by the way, the fetus is made up of um, stuffed condoms. So Yum. here's the thing, though. So they, the censors didn't like that. So they had to cut around it. And it basically made it look like she had eaten the baby instead of just licked it. Which so, yes. So, silly. so the, the, the theatrical <laughs> cut, what people saw in theaters, it obviously you don't see her eat it. But because you don't see her lick it, you assume yeah. that she's eating it because you never see it again. So two very notable critics hated this movie when it came out. One of them is Leonard Malton. He gave it a bomb, that's capital B, and he goes, this is the line from his review, Egar eats her own afterbirth while midget clones, sorry, beat grandparents and lovely young school teachers to death with mallets. It's a big, wide, wonderful world we live in. Bomb. <sighs> See that? 
I love shit like that because it just proves to me that even really well-respected critics, and I'm sorry, like Leonard Maltin's still alive. He's doing great things out there. Yeah, I'm much he like is. His, I prefer his daughter, to be honest. But I do too. But I, I think that he, I think A just treated his opinions well because some of his opinions of older films, I'm like, what the fuck were you on? It's like in this case, you're, are you even watching the movie in question? Because they're not fucking clones. Well, so. And that's not her afterbirth. Let's that move on then. the birth. Like. <laughs> I know, right? It's the actual birth. Also, if it was, the, yeah, the afterbirth is like the placenta, right? Well, it's because, yeah, which would which not people make eat. sense because there's no fucking umbilical cord. Like there's yeah. a scene oh, that yeah. literally says these things are birthed. But not in a conventional way. <laughs> I mean, this to me is though, like, you know, they watch this movie like in 1979 and they're thinking, oh, well, this is a smut film. Like, no one's going to watch yeah. this. So I'm just going to write whatever the fuck I want. Also, exactly. there's no internet. So what are they going to do? <laughs> <laughs> but let's move on to our good friend, Roger Ebert, <sighs> Jesus who gave this movie a one out of four, which is his lowest rating because he never gives zeros. Uh, No, he does. Does he? He, he does. And I know that because he gave both Wolf Creek and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake zero stars. Oh, but I think those are like the most exceptionally rare. Like he. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super rare. And then uh, he also like changed it a little bit later to where like he would give four stars, but then he would also give a higher grade that was great film. (laughs) I know. It's like you can just give it a five star, but whatever. So he called this movie a bore and disgusting in ways that are not entertaining, as opposed, for example, to the great disgusting moments in Alien or Dawn of the Dead, and even went as far as asking, are there really people who want to see reprehensible trash like this? Concluding with, I guess so, it's in its second week. As though what? (laughs) A a film that you disagree with should be out of theaters in a single week? I mean, again, different time period where films actually probably did leave theaters after a week if they were that unsuccessful, but... yeah. I mean, but it wasn't people liked it because I mean, you know, that anyone that went to go see this and, you know, like obviously you didn't have 4000 screens back in 79. But anyone that went to go see this, they are walking out talking about the end of this fucking movie. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> this is a quintessential example of it, it almost doesn't matter what you think about the early parts of the film. Like if you found it boring, if you were like, oh, the acting is a bit stilted. You're walking out of the theater talking about that fucking moment that she pulls back the robe and the lighting switches so that she almost gets halo level lighting so that you can see everything. And she just it's like an emergence of of a cocoon, like coming out of a cocoon. Here she is in all of her goddamn glory. (laughs) I love when she like rips open the um, I mean, what what are we calling it? Like a, a a speeder sack? sack? Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, oh, bitch, you, this ain't your first time at the rodeo. You've done this before. Because <laughs> she just, oh, like, yeah. tears into it. <laughs> yeah. I know exactly where to bite. I know just how much to lick. Oh, it's I love, so gross. I love a little blood on the thigh. It's, mm. I mean, oh, and her licking that baby. I was like, I hope that was, like, cherry flavored for her. Because fake blood does not taste good. Corn syrup. Ugh. Yeah, but we're like, like those blood capsules they sell at like Halloween stores. Blech, so gross. Ew. I had um this is like not relevant, but I had a kid once give me a gummy bear. Um, but it was a solo packaged gummy bear when I was in first grade. This is like a fifth grader, fucking douchebag. And I was in the school bus and I ate it and it was a blood pack. Ew no. I know. And so I literally had fake blood all over my mouth, all over my clothes. And the kid walked out and he's like, Did you eat it? And I was like, Do you see my fucking face? Yes, I ate it. <laughs> I didn't say that because I was in first grade. I didn't know what the fuck right. it was. But <laughs> I was so embarrassed, I almost cried. Uh, 
I know. So out of curiosity, if you could have gone through psychosomatics and, you know, like develop some kind of projectile, what would it have been that would go Ooh, after this kid? Ooh, I guess a giant blood sack. <laughs> like, ooh, and it would have nice. enveloped him and drowned him. Almost like the blob. Oh, listener question. Hey, um, <laughs> for all anyone that's had trauma or bad experiences in their life, which all of us have, what is your psychosomatic or psychoplasmic personification of your rage or whatever do you get little dwarf people or do you get something else well let us know send us a tweet send us an email to horrorqueers at gmail.com but yeah so you know yeah (laughs) woohoo plug so (laughs) but nola is you know representative of what what academics have deemed the monstrous feminine which that's from barbara creed yep yes do you want to expand because that's all i read about it I mean, basically, it's this suggest. So this is one of the critics who denounced this film for suggesting that Cronenberg is most interested in portraying a a female as well as a mother. Like, like the horror of the brood is a woman giving birth. Yeah, yeah. So and which is something that I would contrast with. And it's actually something that William Beard, the guy that I referenced in the dead ringers that I've been casually referencing throughout most of this episode. Right. I'm not that smart. Most of this I got from no, that's him. Fine. He suggests that this, I mean, it's not that it's not a valid reading as always, if you can make the argument, it's, it's worthwhile, but he suggests that she's not, it's not that the movie is suggesting that the act of giving birth, or even her affection to her brood is monstrous, or at least not for the majority of the film. So Beard suggests that at the end of the film, when she does the reveal, at that point, she she does truly become the villain of the piece. Right. But because she's still this woman that we've seen potentially be assaulted as a child you know she's in this loveless marriage that's falling apart she feels that her child being taken away from her is why she becomes murderous right like this is the first instance in the entire film where we actually see her direct her brood in rage to kill someone and it's her daughter and it's because she's so afraid of losing her child that Mm. she would rather murder Candace, as opposed yeah. to let Frank have him. So, I mean, yes, you could say, oh, well, that's monstrous. Oh, my God, a woman who would kill her own child as opposed to give it over to but, her husband. But then I think it disregards any of the past trauma that she's experienced in her life, which is mm-hmm. mental and physical abuse at the hands of her mother. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's it's also the interesting it. reading that Nola has actually always been this way. Like, as a child, she was also monstrous, if you want to put it in that way. Because right. there's another reading that her mother did not actually abuse her, and that just like Candace, she actually oh. had these symptoms as a child. And this is her, to a certain extent, learning how to manifest them in a controlled environment. Gotcha. Oh, man. So, I mean, it's that's what I love about this movie, is you could look at it and say, oh, it's a crazy lady who gives birth to little faceless things that go out and kill for her but i think it belittles some of the emotional nuance and the depth and like it's 92 minutes and think about the kind of weird stuff that you can pull out of this i'm a big fan of the phrase uh write what you know and for cronenberg to take what had to have been a traumatic experience for him because again like i said i can't imagine divorce and or custody battle is pleasant yeah and turning it into a horror movie of so taking a real life horror and making it also like this kind of 
crazy batshit horror movie. Mm-hmm. That's why it works so well. Like there's that personal stake in this movie that he has that what think about it what you will, you know? I mean, again, like there are many ways you can read it, but that's what makes it work. That and I think his dedication to spending time with these characters. It's interesting because we don't actually know that much about them outside mm-hmm. of the time that we're spending with them, but they all feel very real to me. Yeah, for sure. Which is when you think about it, a little bit rare for a lot of horror movies. Yeah, I mean, again, I do wish that I cared more about Frank and Candace a little bit. Like, I cared more about that teacher than I did about Frank and Candace in this movie. Yeah, she's a little bit more, like, emotionally available in that way. Well, and again, I, I have to check myself, though, because maybe it's just because she's a woman. And I find myself, again, normally caring more about women than I do about men. Fair. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's something for me and my therapist to discuss. I mean, did you care about... Dr. Raglan, because he's an interesting, you know, one could argue that Oliver Reed is doing a lot more performance-wise than Art Hindle. He is. I don't know if I want to say that I cared about him, because, again, I found him kind of pretentious and kind of, like, you know, elitist, like, dickish or something. Right. But I did find him the more interesting character over Frank. Hmm. And just so we're clear, he's a big old homo, right, with that assistant? Oh, right. You, <laughs> you mentioned this. I didn't pick up on this. I didn't pick up on this. But I mean, I, I, I could see it. I Maybe. Maybe. Like, what? what, what was there anything specific? Oh, it's it's that, just me reaching. I was like, oh, wow, this male assistant is putting in some long hours. Well, and he sure seems available <laughs> at his beck and call. Like, I, I, Admittedly, I wasn't looking for it. And so when, when you mentioned that to me, it was like, it was the climax of the movie. And I was like, I didn't see that, but now I kind of wish I was looking for it, because then I might have some more to contribute to this conversation. But, I mean, maybe. I don't know. I, they had, like, two scenes together. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the assistant is not a character in this film. No, no, no. But, I mean, I guess you could say that, you know, Raglan's kind of asexual, because he doesn't have yeah. sex with anyone. <laughs> I mean, ain't nobody having sex with anybody. No, no this, one. This is a frigid, cruel dread-filled wintry movie <laughs> well and that, that's that's the similarity though that i have with dead ringers is like you know because i i remarked during that discussion like everything in this movie just feels so cold emotionally and this movie does as well except for the scenes with nola which mm-hmm. they're red <laughs> they're not yep. blue they're red well but the other scenes are actually also not blue just to clarify there's a lot more organic kind of back to naturey stuff happening dead ringers is probably closer to something like shivers or rabid in terms of a color scheme oh uh, sorry i no, <laughs> i don't mean literally red and blue i meant oh, like okay. if like the the tone of the movie like like cold to me is the blue it's like just oh, very like blah okay. but like nola's scenes are red like fire like rage like, th- there's, like, genuine emotion, whereas I feel like in the rest of the movie, like, there's not a lot of emotion on display. But, um, but yeah. Well, I think, and that's why that climax pops so well, right? Because you're, you're finally getting to a moment of crisis, and the emotions are coming out. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, yeah. But, again, like, all of Nola's scenes pretty much have a scene like that. It's just, like, the biggest one is that ending. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you want to play a game? I do want to play a game. What kind of fucked up shit you got for me? Well, I mean, technically, we could call them... The mini one was, like, what would you project? But I want you to tell me what your brood sequel would be. So you're following Candace as a adult. What okay. happens? 
So first, I'm going to amend. So in that particular instance with this fucking blood packet, that would be my brood thing. But I'm going to say it would be some... My actual brood would be manifestations of things that made me happy as a child. So I would go with like, <laughs> uh, I would actually go further back and I would go with like a miniature versions of Scooby-Doo characters. <gasps> ooh, ooh, ooh. Scooby-Doo villains. I, I would, I would birth Scooby-Doo like villains and they would go after people, but they'd be real. Like they wouldn't be like men in masks. Ooh, I love it. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. I'm getting a, a goosebumps live action vision in my head. Yeah, but like at by way of Cronenberg. <laughs> oh, okay. Ooh. That shit is fucked up. I know. So though, for a brood sequel. The thing is, though, you'd have to make it about Candy, and I don't give a fuck. You age her 20, 15 years, 10 or 15 years. Okay, yeah. And you make her interesting. But you don't give her amnesia. That is my biggest fucking complaint with somebody. This is like, oh, she's like repressed it because it was so traumatizing, blah, blah, blah. She has to go back to therapy to figure out what happened. Oh, my God, it's just like her mom. But then it kind of becomes like a Firestarter type thing, though, like where it's like, oh, like maybe like people want to study her and like uh, whatever. But like, does she do a brood? Is that what she does? Or you give her a new power? Like, sure, she has her mom's like bump things, but Mm -hmm. maybe hers manifests in some other way that aren't, you know, giving birth to this these things yeah i i mean i think if you wanted to be boring you would have her give birth to brood things because that would be the most obvious and painfully boring way to do it but hopefully we would do it somewhere more interesting but yeah make it like this is your x-men like make it like cronenberg's x-men each each brood movie is going to be like a different power a power ability like manifestation whatever that's funny because when you said that Unfortunately, my mind immediately went to the forthcoming Dark Phoenix movie that they're putting out. Uh-huh. I'm thinking about like maybe it's Candace fighting her interior desires to oh, yeah. wreak revenge on someone. So she knows she's got the power, but she's maybe it's to her fight father. It. Hmm. Yeah. If he's still alive, I don't know. Give her dad something more meaningful to do. Would you go for a remake of this movie? No. No. Absolutely not. I would not. To me, this is. I mean, I rate it a four because I don't I don't love the movie in terms of rewatchability or like it's not one of my all time favorites, but I can't like if I found out that someone was remaking this film, I would be livid. It's like stay away from my brood with a 10 foot pole. I'm a firm five out of five on this one. This is like I, I don't want to say that on my rare five out of fives because I have quite a few of them. But in terms of rewatchability or like I think it's a movie where if I'm gonna introduce someone to Cronenberg I think this is a very palatable one to do which is saying something considering what's involved (laughs) but (laughs) it's an easy film to watch in the sense that it's not like heady I don't know if that's the right word but yeah so I get it and also it's a very much a product of its time like you just like again using this therapy with S and stuff but which oh by the way I forgot to mention apparently it's uh, also considered very similar to um it's either gestalt or gestalt therapy I think it's gestalt but um I mean, whatever. I'd fucking go see it, but I don't think that no one, anyone's ever going to remake the brood. <laughs> well, that's interesting because so the Soska sisters are coming out with their remake of Rabbids sometime mm-hmm. this year. I don't think that a timeline has been confirmed, but they are on the record of having interest in remaking Dead Ringers, which I think I could honestly see a remake of Dead Ringers if you're doing it in a different way. Like, can you imagine female? That's like they make it women. Oh my god! If they if they did it themselves, but yeah, I mean, I 
Well, I wouldn't envy anyone trying to remake a Cronenberg film. I th- I think one of the reasons I like this film is it's actually quite reflective of a lot of his other films. But you're right that it is a bit more of an easier introduction because it's not super crazy body horror until that end. And mm-hmm. the the sort of muted emotional, like the lack of emotionality, you know, the, the fixation with male impotence, uh, you know, doctors, weird science, all that kind of stuff. Like, these are really things that he's interested in all the way through to existence. Yeah. And then, well, after that, he goes very Hollywood and it all gets very yeah. boring. But Which we discussed in Dead Ringer, so. Yes. <laughs> I know. Uh, all right. So quickly, what is your brood manifestation? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, fucker. Hmm. I never actually think of answers to my own questions. So. You know what? I'm going to do like a Poison Ivy-esque kind of thing. Ooh. So like Ooh. a manifestation with plants and vegetation and that kind of stuff. I I, I love that. Like you like you have like, oh, it's like a killer vines. It's like, it's like a yeah. mix of like the, the ruins and shit. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, oh. I'm, yeah, my favorite elements... Well, I guess plants aren't really element, but yeah, I, I'm a sucker for like plant or water themed like superpowers. So I'm into that. Cool. I'm interested to hear what other people think of this film. If you are not a big Cronenberg fan, is this something that you took a chance on and you liked, or is it just kind of more of the same? I know a lot of people love Agar. Like she's great. She's amazing. Queer icon for life. She's oh. Uh... Man, that the hair alone. <laughs> the, the yes, the hair. But I love a seventies hair. Give me seventies hair on ladies, and give me flared pants on men. No, one hundred percent. I'm way more into seventies fashion than I am into eighties fashion. Oh God! Oh yes. <laughs> fuck eighties fashion. I know. But I mean, fuck nineties fashion more. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean like. I would live in the Brady Bunch movies. It'd be great. Um, so yeah, no, let us know what you think about this movie, especially if it was your first time watching it. If you've, mm-hmm. if you've seen this movie before, like you can tell us. But I'm really intrigued because, again, I feel like we have a younger listener base for the most part. Not everyone. Like I, I, I know that's not true. But for the youngins, I want to know, if this is your first time watching it, what did you think of this movie? Because, again, I know the younger ones sometimes haven't seen a lot of the older films, which is fine, which is what we're trying to do by discussing older films on this podcast. But yeah, let us know, because this is a kooky movie. This is actually, I think, the second oldest film that we've covered, too. Yeah, Daughters of Darkness is the oldest. We'll have to rectify that. We have to do a few more classics, so. Yeah, we'll do a few more classics, but we'll space them out. (laughs) All right, into the housekeeping. So yeah, that'll uh, wrap up The Brood for us. And uh, before we announce what we're covering next week, if you want to reach us on Twitter, you can reach me at Trace Thurman. And I'm at B, stole my remote. That's the letter B. But if you're tweeting about us, please use the the hashtag HorrorQueers in your tweets. Or you can email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. We will be doing mailbag episodes now. So please send us emails. It's going to be great. Uh, If you have two seconds, please head over to iTunes and leave us a star rating. Or if you have a little bit longer, leave us a review. And, uh, of course, if you like what you've listened to and want even more content, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes and mini-sodes each month. Now, the bonus content for May, I believe we've got, uh, well, actually, we do have an episode on Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, the Zac Efron Ted Bundy movie. And, yeah, (laughs) and we've also got an episode on Netflix's The Perfection coming out very, very soon. Joe, what are we covering next week? 
So, as I mentioned slash threatened, we are sticking with a little bit of CaneCon, so we're doing a Canadian co-production of Bruce LaBruce's Auto, or Up With Dead People. So we are swinging a gay zombie film into the mix just in time for the end of Zombie Awareness Month. Yeah, I... Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've never it seen this might movie. have been something that Megan Navarro made up. So yeah, Megan Navarro, uh, if you're listening, thanks for that. But yeah, she said it was something about Zombie Month or whatever on Twitter. So we're gonna go with it because it drops on May 29th. This apparently is gonna be a very sexual movie. I've never seen it. Oh yeah. It. Yeah. Have you seen it? I have not, but I know Bruce LeBruce. Okay. Uh, it is streaming on Amazon, and that is how I plan on watching it, because the Blu-ray was $40, and I am not paying $40 for a gay zombie movie that I have not seen. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to fuck you up. Yeah, it's going to be great. So, um, on that note, we can cross out the brood. Yes, and cross out horror queers. This episode was brought to you by the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, delivering your weekly horror podcast fix. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit bloodydisgusting.com backslash podcast network.